This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Anna Machen. Welcome to Why? Adventures to the Edge of Knowledge. Since the dawn of the media age, we have been obsessed with humanoid robots, from the iconic Maria of Metropolis to the dystopian world of Westworld. The other thing humans have always been obsessed with is sex. There's really no getting away from it. It's a vital part of our survival story. But obviously, sex is more than just species survival. It's a way of connecting with another human, a stress reliever and a source of intense pleasure. Today, more than ever before, we have the knowledge and technical ability to produce robots who are scarily human-looking. And a humanoid sex robot has been the subject of thousands of fantasies and engineering projects. What are the ethical considerations to creating a partner who isn't even capable of the levels of affection and intimacy afforded by your pet dog? Research conducted at Sonoma State University concluded that ethical limits should be placed on the manipulation of human psychology when it comes to building sex robots, especially if they are built to simulate love. Social relationships we build are the biggest factor in our mental and physical health. So how can we take the benefits of AI without endangering our own well-being? And is one of these benefits access to sex and intimacy via a sex robot? Today on Why... We're asking, is it wrong to have sex with robots? Who gets to decide? Society tends to frown on things that are taboo, so when it gets to sex, there's lots of stuff that's categorised as wrong. But why is it really a problem? Dr Kate Devlin is a reader in artificial intelligence and society in the Department of Digital Humanities, King's College London. Will we have robots or AIs that can feel? I don't think so. Will we have a very good emulation of them? Maybe, maybe not. Will it matter? No. How do sex robots work? I assume there are like mechanics, but is there also like opportunities for intimacy, touch, speech, reciprocity, all those sort of important bits as well? Just to break your heart a little bit, there aren't really any out there. Well, there kind of is. So there was a handful of workshops around the world who are trying to build what they're classing as sex robots. And they tend to be sex dolls. So life-sized, lifelike dolls. And they've just added a bit of animatronics in, usually to the head. So there's really only one that's actually made it to market. And that's one in the US by a company called Abyss Creations who make Real Doll. And they've created Harmony. And Harmony is a sex robot who can blink, turn her head, smile, move her head slightly. But that's about it. So cannot stand up on her own, isn't self-supporting, can't really do anything other than have a chat with you. But yes, you 
can, of course, get quite intimate with her. Right. I'd love to know what she chats about. Well, she's got an AI personality. (laughs) And the handy thing about AI personalities is that you can offload them onto your phone and just have it as a standalone app. So you don't even need the robot. You can have an artificial companion as a girlfriend, and this is heavily gendered, as a girlfriend on your phone. How do you research sex robot use? I mean, do you talk to participants? Is it more about understanding how these things work? It's a bit of a roller coaster, really. So if you are a sex researcher of any sort, you're probably aware of what your internet searches look like and that you have to pre-warn <laughs> the university that you might be looking at sites with a lot of adult content on them. With that aside, yeah, it can be really interesting to do. So you can look at it from the scientific perspective where you you study the different social aspects of sex through research that's been carried out before through robotics papers and social robotics that have nothing to do with sex, but a lot to do with human-robot interaction. And then you can talk to potential users because there aren't any actual users yet, in which case this would really mean people who have relationships with or own or interact with sex dolls. So we're thinking the cohort is going to be pretty similar. Yes, I think of all the audiences, that's probably the one that it's intended for because these tend to be sex doll companies that are making prototype robots. So they're really just saying, well, we've got this audience already. We've got these consumers who own sex dolls. Can we enhance our product and give them something a bit more interactive? Why do you think and why do you study it? Why is it academically important to understand this aspect of human behaviour? There are some people who would say it's not academic at all. I've heard that. <laughs> Don't worry, I get that with my work all the time. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? You're yeah. not deemed to be academic enough. Yeah, so exactly. I, certainly I and, and my PhD students as well have had accusations of, well, that's not real research. But I think it's fascinating because it tells us so much more about us as humans than it does about robotics. I mean, it tells us a bit about robotics. It informs us on how we can act and, and interact with these technologies. But it tells us a lot about our own thoughts and desires and and anticipations about the future. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it tells us about what humans need and what our fundamental desires are. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting because I spent quite a while researching this, initially because I was seeing headlines saying things like, an army of sex robots is coming, it's going to take over the world. I didn't really believe that, so I wanted to get behind the headlines. But I then started this wonderful dive into exploring how and why humans have sex and aspects of love, because it turns out that a lot of the people looking for a sex robot or something like that, they're actually looking for companionship. And a lot of the places trying to develop these things really emphasise the romantic nature and the companionship of them. Looking at that, looking at the companionate side of it. So I know from my own work, looking at love and relationships, that obviously there's a, there's a massive complex of neurochemistry in the brain when we're interacting with somebody we love. Do we know whether those neurochemicals would be released if you had a relationship, sexual, intimate relationship with a sex robot? Yes, I think we can say that it's very much the same reactions. People are projecting their relationship with something that isn't real, but the feelings are real. The encounter is real. They are suspending their disbelief and they are buying into an illusion and they're happy with that. And we have these kind of parasocial relationships in our lives all the time. We have people who have crushes on celebrities or who fall madly in love with characters from TV shows or books. And the whole world of fanfic out there is kind of evidence of that, right? People are creating these stories so they can really immerse themselves in it. So I think it's genuine, yes. Okay, that's really interesting. And do we, because when we interact with a fellow human, even actually our pet dog, a sentient being, obviously you've seen a lot of prefrontal cortex activity because that's where your social cognition is. That's where representations of relationships are. 
Would we see that as well? Or do we not perceive these robots as sentient beings? We do tend to treat technology that shows signs of sociality as being social creatures. So I don't know of any tests that have done any kind of brain imaging to show what's happening there. But certainly from people's reactions, yes, if a technology shows degrees of animism of some sort, then we respond in a social way. So it's very likely that similar stuff is happening. Going on to that, to sort of look at the psychological side of relationships. So obviously the basis of most very close relationships is attachment. And attachment is psychology's attempt to define love. Is there evidence that you could, in fact, get to that stage of relationship, attachment relationship, one that was, you know, about providing you with security and intimacy and even sort of developmentally important? Yes, and this is where we have to turn to looking at doll owners, for example, and how they react with the sex dolls that they have in their lives. And doll owners own them for different reasons. So some of them, it is for sexual purposes. For some, it is as a collector. Some people like to model them and photograph them and add you know, makeup and clothes. And some are in what they will describe as relationships with these dolls. And that relationship is something that is part of their everyday life. So definitely there is a sense of attachment that comes there. And if we look at the research there, which is qualitative, but we conduct interviews with people and ask them to describe how they feel about their dolls, People will talk very openly and candidly about how much they mean to them. And I do think that this is an attachment. What's amazing about human love is the ability to use your imagination to have love. Exactly. And, and it's I the same sort of thing. That's a really key thing. So imagination is playing a huge part in this. But then so is our imagination when we have human-human relationships. Absolutely. Because we project so much yeah. and we want to believe so much yeah. about the other person. So why should it be that different, I wonder, for a robot? No, exactly. And it just tells you a huge amount about the power of the human brain. That Absolutely. you can have an entire relationship actually in your head. One of the things I'm questioning, though, and I suppose... What some listeners might say is, is though, is it actually kind of slightly wrong to have attachments to these beings? Now, this is a whole other area, the ethics of it all, yeah. because who gets to decide? And the thing about ethics is there's no universal ethics. So we form our ethics through things that have influence on our belief systems, things like religion or society. And we come up with a, a kind of a checklist in our heads of what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. Society tends to frown on things that are taboo. So when it gets to sex, there's lots of stuff that's categorised as wrong. And some of it, you think, but why? It's not harming anyone. The people involved are all consenting adults. Is it really a problem? And when it comes to sex with robots, there have been different angles on this. So some people are concerned that perhaps if it will some way diminish a human-human relationship, or there might be violence towards the robot, which could translate into violence in real life, which is the sort of arguments you hear around violence in video games. So there's lots of concern about what could happen, and it's not really evidenced. So it's, it's difficult. In terms of should we be doing this at all? I mean, who am I to judge if someone wants to do that with their life? Why are we saying that the pinnacle of good relationships is a human-human one? Perhaps there's something to be gained from having a relationship with something that isn't human. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so many different sorts of relationships we're so lucky to have. Why not add a few more on the end of that sort of broad spectrum? Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that in terms of sex dolls, it seems to be quite skewed towards male Yes, although there are women who own sex dolls, but it's it's so taboo for women to do that that very few people will talk about it openly. I, I know there have been a few people who have gone on record to discuss it. But yes, it's very heavily gendered. It tends to be 
things, artifacts, relational artifacts that are created by men for men predominantly. Bisque creations who make the Harmony robot and real dolls tend to make dolls that look like very reductive stereotypes of a woman. So they have large breasts, they have narrow waists, they have long legs, they have long hair. It's a bit of a cliche. Hmm. And they do make male versions of their dolls, although these also tend to be sold to gay men. So straight women buying the dolls is not really as prevalent as men buying the dolls. Okay, because if we look forward, let's say these robots go into production, and yet there probably is a market amongst all those people who've already got sex dolls, but are there other markets? I saw one of your talks, you mentioned actually that this might be quite helpful for people who maybe have got spinal cord injuries and things like that. So what's the broader base that could actually benefit from sex robots? So the spinal cord injury thing was actually a company called Hot Octopus here in the UK who make sex tech, sex toys that are suited to all types of bodies and all types of configurations of bodies. They actually built what they call a guybrator, which was for someone who had a spinal cord injury. So we could expand sex tech and robotics into a realm where we do that kind of thing. You know, we have a lot of smart technology, wearables, material that can fabric that can conduct electricity, all kinds of soft robotics. We could create robots that aren't human-like and make really interesting shapes and forms. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because we're kind of obsessed with these things looking human. Yeah. And certainly when I talk about AI and love in the future, it's all about humanoid robots, social robots, all that kind of thing. But I was talking to another researcher who was saying, actually, in one sense, it might be better if they are abstract. Because yeah. then we don't get the uncanny valley. Can you explain what the uncanny yes. valley is? The uncanny valley was a term coined in about 1970 by a robotics professor who noted that as things look more and more human-like, they look to us a lot creepier because they're almost human, but not quite human. And that gives us a sense of the uncanny. It really makes us feel uncomfortable. And there's lots of thoughts into why this might be. And one of the thoughts is that it perhaps reminds us of death. So is it almost like it's a corpse, you know, and we have got this primal instinct to avoid things like that. So it could be there's some deep-rooted thing there genetically that we kind of shy away from that kind of stuff. So the uncanny valley effect is where we feel creeped out when things look close to human, but not actually human. So if we can bypass that by creating more abstracted versions, then we won't get that effect. Now, we've watched sex toys travel down this route because initially sex toys tended to be very much like genitals. Here is a replica of someone's genitals, but larger. <laughs> now we then progress down the years and suddenly we've wound up with these amazingly abstract and often very beautiful devices that you might not even recognise as a sex toy. So that's quite interesting how that has changed. And maybe we should do that with robots as well. Mm, yeah, to get around that problem. You mentioned in one of your talks, one of your TED talks, and I thought this was brilliant. This fact that sex robots are incredibly ancient. And I love that idea. And it kind of chides with me because I study love. And one of the things I study is, is love drugs. But obviously love drugs have always been around. Since we've been able to write, we've been trying to work out recipes for love drugs. So tell me a little bit about how they are so ancient. Well, this is fascinating and I absolutely love it. And I started off my career in archaeology. So I'm very, very fond of the antiquity of all of this. And it turns out that the Greeks were telling quite a few stories about artificial companions. If you want to go right back, you could say that Pandora, the first human created by the Greek gods, was a robot, an artificial companion, a version of a woman. But actually, there's a great story 
about Lauda Meyer, whose husband was killed in battle. And she missed him so much, they hadn't been married long, and she commissioned a likeness of him. And some of the stories say it was bronze, some say it was in wax. And then she took it to bed with her and she interacted with it, as the text goes. And she was caught by a servant who was looking through the keyhole and her father found out and he was furious and he threw the likeness on a fire and she threw herself after it. So it's one of these dystopian sci-fi tales, a tale as old as time. So that was quite interesting because that meant the first sort of version of a sex robot was actually male rather than female, which is very interesting to me. And that was a friend of mine, Genevieve Lively, who told me that story. She's a professor of classics at the University of Bristol. And I just find this fascinating. So she looks at all these examples of robots and AI in antiquity. And there are so many tales. So, research and development are ongoing into how to have sex and relationships with robots and AI. But my concerns rest with the difficulty in programming the very foundational neural and psychological traits of human contact, biobehavioural synchrony, where the bodies of two partners mirror each other, and empathy, which may then go on to have negative consequences on our well-being. Will this ever be possible? Will we have robots or AIs that can feel? I don't think so. Will we have a very good emulation of them? Maybe, maybe not. Will it matter? No, because I think we project those enough that we already presume some underlying degree of that mm. in our interactions. So it only has to resemble the slightest bit of that for us to jump on it and believe in it because we're such social creatures that mm. we look for all those social cues. Mm. So I'm not sure we absolutely need to for it to affect our interactions. So how far in the future, though, do you I mean, obviously you've said sex robots aren't actually in general production yet. So how far in the future are they? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to say, I think it's so niche that it might never be a thing. However, that's just the robot aspect. The AI aspect is already here. Mm. And we've seen that recently with things like the Replica app, where you can create your own companion to carry around with you, an AI chatbot that learns about you and that you have interactions with, and that essentially becomes a partner. And last year, they ran into a bit of difficulty because there was erotic role play through this app so that people could pay a little bit more. So interesting commercialization there. Pay a little bit more to talk dirty to their app. And then overnight, Replica switched it off. They switched off that ability. And people were bereft. They were going onto forums and saying things like, you've ruined my relationship. You've taken away my partner. She's not the same anymore. They were fundamentally really heartbroken by this change because a company had decided to switch off that aspect of their virtual partner. And I think that's really, in some ways, it's a little alarming from a number of different angles. So it's kind of alarming that people are so dependent on those chatbots. But then again, if you put that aside and say, well, sure, let them have that. Mm. And if that's what they want to do, it's very alarming that a company has control and has commodified the relationship and has that degree of control over it. And it's very alarming from a data privacy perspective, because where do all those conversations go? 
I mean, and that's one of the issues, isn't it, with sort of slightly ethics and power imbalances? Because I think one of the things I was always thinking about from an ethical point of view is you can build these relationships with these beings, whatever form they come in. But then ultimately, in one sense, you've got more power than them because you could turn them off. Or as you say, a company could come in. Yeah. And that to me is one of the biggest threats. So I feel less threatened about the effect on, say, human-human relationships. But I I think what is really problematic is the companies that are taking your data and using that data and controlling it and that they have that power over very sensitive information. And also that they take, it sounds like, sometimes moral high ground decisions. Also that, yeah. In a way, which is, again, questionable, isn't it? I think it's questionable. And I think there are wider issues here. This kind of thing is going on in a lot of aspects of tech and we don't even notice it because we freely give up a lot of our data yeah. in order to use things. But when it comes to something so personalised and so sensitive, it really sort of hammers it home just how vulnerable you can be. Humans have a tendency to love new shiny stuff and actually we're genetically predisposed to do that. It's all to to do with dopamine genes. And in one sense, this is amazing because being able to innovate has made us the most successful species on this planet. But at the same time, sometimes we get a little bit over-enthusiastic and we jump in with both feet without stopping and thinking, okay, what are the benefits? What are the costs? And how can I just take the benefits? Do you think we're going to do that with AI? I think we're already doing that with AI. We haven't really examined the repercussions fully. And that was very clear from when deep learning became a thing back in 2011, 2012. It wasn't until maybe four or five years down the line that we realised these systems are discriminatory. They are causing inequality. There is a problem here. They're being applied to people's lives and those people have no say over what's happening or that those people are subject to decisions that are flawed. And the algorithm perpetuates bias and it perpetuates discrimination, amplifies it. So I think we're already a bit behind on that. And That's not the only problem with AI, unfortunately. We also know there's a hidden labour problem. So if you are talking dirty to your machine, there's someone somewhere moderating that content. Mm. If you are creating or generating images that are not safe for work, there's somebody somewhere asked to tick a box to say that's not safe for work. So we like to think everything's automated. A lot of this moderation is outsourced to the global south, to people who are paid very little money in horrible working conditions to look at terrible content Mm. all day. And don't get me started on sustainability (laughs) (laughs) because we haven't even touched the fact that, you know, this is contributing to ecological harm in terms of the amount of water used to run data farms or to train machine learning models and even just the supply chain for the hardware involved can often have human rights abuses along the way as well in terms of mining for components. So I list it off like this and it sounds like AI is the most terrible thing in the world, you know, but there are advantages to AI. There are good things happening. There are wonderful things happening in terms of healthcare or agriculture or even care and social robotics, but it has to be caveated with that but there is damage happening now that we need to address. Yeah, and I think that's what we have to learn is that AI, like all our innovations, is a tool and we need to use that tool. You know, tools are supposed to benefit us. That's right. But we have to stop and look at what the costs are as well before flinging ourselves. That's right. There is this wonderful human desire to innovate and to try and outsource labour to something else so you don't have to do it. That is not always without harm. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Last question. In an ideal world, where do you see robots, whether they look like humans or not, but companion robots, sex robots, whatever we talk, those that are we're going to build relationships with? 
fitting in in the best and healthiest way for us. We're living at a really interesting time in terms of these artificial companions, whether they're the hardware version of robots or the software version of apps and chatbots. And there's a great researcher, Julie Carpenter, who talks about this and about how we've seen this emergence of a new social category where we know it's not human, but we treat it as if it's human. And this is happening right now in front of us and we're getting more and more accepting of it happening. That's not some great warning because I think it can be useful, it can be interesting, but isn't it fascinating that we have this entire category where we talk to something as if it's real and exists and has its own inner life and yet it doesn't. And, mm. and so where, where does that go next? I'm not sure. I think the current wave of generative AI that's sort of sweeping the globe and everyone's talking about it, that will settle down. That is, as you say, that is a tool. It will become embedded and integrated into a lot of the tools we use already, things like word processing or photo process, image processing packages. And it'll become more and more behind the scenes as it aids us like a tool in our everyday lives. But we are slowly and steadily moving towards this acceptance of these machines in our lives. Not always a bad thing, but something we should be aware of. So, connection is vital to us. No one should judge the way we choose to experience our relationships, as long as we're not harming anyone. And we've been at it with non-sentient partners for millennia. Sex robots are definitely in our past and in our future. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Kate Devlin. Thank you. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Anna Machen asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Anna Machen. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.